name, amen. Sometimes I imagine what it would be like for preachers to sit across the table from Peter or John or the Apostle Paul and say to them the things that we say to congregations or to say to them the things that we write in our books. Since I have not yet written a book, I get to deflect this morning to those who have And I want to imagine what lunch would look like between Peter and a very popular preacher slash author. I won't mention his name, but I will quote him. So here's the scene. Peter comes rushing into the quaint Middle Eastern cafe. He's a little out of breath. He says to the famous preacher, I'm I'm so sorry I'm late. I couldn't find a spot out front. I had to park my camel blocks away. Ah, pastor says, well, that's okay, Peter, but listen, it, it doesn't have to be that way. You're, you're not viewing God in the right way. Let, let me give you some advice. The next time you can't find a parking space, and you can quote me on this, say, Father, I thank you for leading and guiding me. Your favor will cause me to get a good spot. Okay. So no more of this, I can't find a spot business, okay? But but Peter, that's not why I called you here. That's a freebie. Let me get to the point. Why I wanted to have lunch with you today. I can't help but notice, Peter, that you've been having some trouble in your life. You keep getting hauled in for questioning. You keep receiving these threats. You've been beaten. Come on, you've been thrown in the slammer. Peter, what's going on? You know, this is getting a little embarrassing, not only for you, but for us and for our faith. You are not reflecting the glory of God. But listen, Peter, your life doesn't have to be this way. And you can quote me on this. I've come to expect to be treated differently. I've learned to expect people to want to help me. My attitude is, I'm a child of the Most High God. My Father created the whole universe. He has crowned me with favor. Therefore, I can expect preferential treatment. Peter, I'm just going to talk straight to you now before the salad comes. If you will start acting like it, talking like it, seeing yourself as more than a conqueror, you will live a prosperous and victorious life. Okay, Peter, so no more arrests, no more imprisonments. Now, please imagine, please imagine saying things like that to a man like Peter who lived as he lived and who died as he died. My intention is not to make fun of someone else's mistakes or misguided thoughts. I have plenty of those on my own. But over 5 million people have bought copies of the Christian book from the Christian pastor from which I have just quoted. That's going to have an influence on the way Christians view themselves, how they view God, how they view their role in this world. 
they may begin to believe that the Christian life is like signing God on as a partner in your life so that you can be successful and prosperous and have a good self-image so that you can name it, God will bankroll it, and you can claim it. God becomes a genie in a bottle to find a parking space. Do I pray for a parking space? Yes, when I am late. Lord, please give me a parking space. But it does not diminish my faith, nor does it diminish the glory or the power of God if I don't find one. This narrow, self-centered focus is not what the Christian life is about. The Christian life is about partnering with God, indeed. Partnering with a God who is transforming the world through the power of an uncontainable Christ. That's what I hope we'll see this morning. Through the Word of God, I'm going to ask you, if you have your Bibles with you, to turn in the New Testament to the Gospel of John, chapter 21. And when you found your place in John chapter 21, I'm going to ask you to stand as we hear, read together, the word of the living God. John chapter 21, beginning in verse 18, this is the word of the Lord. I tell you the truth, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following him. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread among the brothers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. Let's pray together. Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you that by the declaration of the verses we read this morning, this word is true. It's your truth, inspired by your spirit. So Father, now we ask that you would Take your word and break it as bread to us this morning and feed our souls with it. Strengthen us to be the people that you have called us to be because, Lord, we see you to be the kind of God that you are, glorious, uncontainable. We submit ourselves now to you and to the authority of your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much. You may be seated. And I ask you to look again at verse 19. Because this verse contains a a powerful concept, a powerful concept that if we grasp it, it will radically change the way we view life and change the way we live our lives. I want to read verse 19 again. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death 
by which Peter would glorify God. Peter was going to glorify God by his death. Now, the majority of you here this morning are young. You are, or relatively young, anyway. And you either rightly or wrongly believe that your death is far off. Well, only the Lord knows whether you're right or wrong in your thinking. A few of us here are a little bit further down the road. But this verse calls all of us, no matter how old we are, to think about the end. We don't like to think about the end, but we should. Because the place where we want to end up makes all the difference in how we're going to live our lives while we are on our way there. And if you and I, as believers in Christ, have it as a goal that we want to glorify the Lord in our death, that very likely means that you and I will live lives in the in-between time, glorifying Him as well. See, I think we fool ourselves. If we believe we can live as we want to live right now and do what we want to do, and then somehow, some mysterious way, God is going to give us some little clue when our end is near so that we can begin to make these radical changes in our lives so that right before we die, we can glorify the Lord. My sense is that if we intend to glorify God in our deaths, we must also glorify Him in our lives as well. How did Peter glorify the Lord in his death? I'm sure you know church tradition. It tells us that Peter was crucified. It tells us that Peter requested to be crucified upside down because he did not feel worthy to die in the same way that his Lord had died. We don't know for sure that that's what happened, but we know from Jesus' words in these verses that Peter did experience a violent death. How was Peter able to make that decision in that moment? How was he able to glorify the Lord even in the moment of his death? It's because Peter understood what glory was. Peter understood what it meant to glorify God. And you and I need to take a few moments this morning to try to get our minds around this hard-to-define concept of glory and this act that we call glorifying. The idea of glory emphasizes appearance. It emphasizes what is seen. And so when we're talking about the glory of God, we're not talking about His character. We're talking about what is seen when He reveals Himself. When we're talking about the glory of God, we're talking about the impression that God makes when people see Him for who He is. Scripture tells us the heavens declare the glory of God. And so when we're out in creation in those special places that appear to us to be unspoiled by human touch, we glorify God. Lord, you did this. You are glorious. But specifically, God is glorified when people see all that God has done to buy them back, to buy us back, to restore his image in us, to make us his very own. 
You see, the people of Israel, they saw the Red Sea part before their eyes, and it was glorious in their sight because it was for them their salvation. The people of God saw Mount Sinai. They saw the smoke. They saw the fire. They saw the the flash of lightning. They heard the roar of the thunder, and it was glorious in their sight because they knew that in that moment God was revealing his will for their lives, revealing himself, revealing the kind of life and the way of life that would lead to blessing for them. They saw the manna that God sent from heaven. They saw the water come gushing out of the rock and it was glorious in their sight because they knew that it was God's provision to sustain their lives. The Apostle John writes that Jesus came full of grace and truth and they beheld him. And he was glorious in their sight because Jesus was for them, for us, the salvation of God. So glory comes from beholding. Glory comes from seeing. Glory comes from looking at the mighty acts of God. And those acts, the supreme one, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, those acts of God reveal his glory. You and I glorify God when we acknowledge those acts. Lord, Look, I see, I behold. I see what you have done. You are glorious in my sight. Thank you for all that you have done on my behalf. We glorify God when in our lives, his glorious acts are on display. When the new creation that God has made us to be is on display, God is glorified. When there are new gospel acts in our lives, God is glorified. When our new faith is seen in the face of fear, God is glorified. When our new hope is seen in the face of despair, God is glorified. When our new love is seen in the face of hate or indifference or ingratitude, God is glorified. Glory is what people see when they see God's good work in your life in mind. So let's think of the converse. The Lord is not glorified when his good works in us are not on display for others to see. The Old Testament term for glory is kabod. We can say that together. Now you know a Hebrew word, kabod. Kabod. That's the word, the term for glory. Ichabod, Ichabod was used It means where is the glory or or the glory has departed. And Ichabod was used at the time when the Ark of the Covenant was captured by the Philistines and taken out away from Israel. The Ark of the Covenant was that chest covered with gold that was kept in the Holy of Holies, the most holy place, the dwelling place of God. Hebrews chapter 9 tells us that stored... Inside that ark were the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had miraculously budded overnight and blossomed and produced almonds, and the stone tablets of the covenant. So when this ark, with all the reminders that it contained of the glorious acts of God, 
when it was captured, when it was taken out of Israel, Ichabod was proclaimed, meaning the glory of the Lord has departed. And so when there are no acts displaying the character of God and the mighty power of God in our lives, how can there be glory in that place, either in our lives or in our deaths? Think about Jesus for a moment. We say that right now he is in heaven. We say that right now he is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. We say that right now Jesus is glorified. And all of that is absolutely true. But Jesus did not have to wait to get to heaven for his glory to be on display. John records these words of Jesus in chapter 12. And Jesus answered them saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. See, Jesus is glorified by his acts, his suffering, his death, his resurrection, because these acts of Jesus represent God's intervention in human history. Jesus' glory is what he did. And God the Father was glorified by those acts. Now listen, Jesus says that we too, you and I, share his glory. This is what he prays in the upper room. The last night of his life, he prays to the Father and says, the glory that you have given me, I give to them. 2 Corinthians 3, 18. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So let's understand this. The Christian life is not about what we can get from God. The Christian life is about how we can reflect His character and put His good works in our lives on display. And at least for Jesus and for Peter and for all the other apostles, that did not mean preferential treatment, for goodness sake. It didn't mean physical comfort or financial success. It meant suffering and death. Glory for them did not mean a life consumed with self. Instead, it was a selfless life lived in service to others. Peter knew what true glory was. He knew what it meant to glorify God with his life. And so when the time came for him to die, Peter, we are going to crucify you. It didn't require a radical last minute change in Peter's life, in order to glorify the Lord. No, Peter just continued to do what he had been doing all along. 
He kept trusting in the Lord whose glory he had seen revealed over and over and over again. And so it should be for you and for me. Glorify the Lord in our lives so that no change is required in order for us to glorify God in our deaths as well. The question we need to answer is how did Peter do it? What enabled Peter to live a God-glorifying life from this moment on the beach with Jesus until the day of his death? What will enable us, you and me, to live, to live God-glorifying lives even from this very moment until the time of our deaths? Two acts. Two acts. One is loving in light of the resurrection, loving in light of the resurrection, and secondly, letting go. So first let's consider loving in light of the resurrection. Up until this point on the beach, Peter has been living in in the old world, the pre-resurrection world. And that world worked in a certain way. That world had rules. Roman authorities were in charge. If you run afoul of those authorities, you risk your own life. And because Peter had been living in that pre-resurrection world, he made decisions based on the old way of living. For Peter, that meant deny Jesus, please the authorities, save your life. But Jesus' resurrection, listen, it's ushered in a new reality. A resurrection reality, a new world order. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. That's the old world order. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore... If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So see, in this post-resurrection reality, we're released, all of us, from living and making decisions according to the standards of the old world. The old has passed away. The new has come. A world in which things can be reborn, Remade, renewed, and transformed. Life can come from death. Is that good news? The resurrection stands at the very head of the new way of the world. And here, Peter stands on the beach with the resurrected Christ and the new order with all its possibilities. And its new hope has come. How will it be accessed? How will Peter keep from living in the old world? Making decisions in the old way? How will he believe that tyrants won't always win and get their way? How will he know that he doesn't always have to give in to them? How will he know that he no longer has to live in fear? The answer, I'm so glad you asked. It's love. Love is the answer. Love is the way for us to access this new world order, this new way of living. And Jesus knows that's the key to access for us. And so he says, 
to Peter in this passage. He asked him three times, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? You need to be sure that you do. Notice that Jesus does not say, Peter, do you know me? But Peter, do you love me? Because love is the deepest kind of knowing. Love is the deepest kind of knowing. We can analyze facts and we can know or we can acknowledge. But love takes knowledge to its deepest level. Jesus, I love you because I know you. And because I know you, because I know your character, this world now looks different to me. Because I know you, Jesus, because I I love you. This world is full of new possibilities. It's full of new power. I have hope that the old has passed away. Not only for me as an individual, not only from the, the sin in my life and the former way of living, but also the working and the ways, the old order that kept us in line and kept us in fear. I live in a world where Jesus is Lord. Obama's not Lord. Caesar's not Lord. Sin is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. That kind of love compels us and propels us into the world to tell others of that love. 2 Corinthians 5, 14. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live, listen, should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Resurrection life, new world order, compelled by the love of Christ to go into the world, not living for self, but living to glorify the Lord in life and in death. How are you doing with that? We have to ask ourselves, how are we doing with that? How compelled are we to go to the world with the love of Christ? How compelled are we to stop living for ourselves and start living for his glory? Secondly, thankfully, lastly, the key to living a life and then a death that glorifies the Lord is not only in this resurrection love, but it's in letting go. Letting go. Look in verse 25. The very last verse of this gospel. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. The whole world could not contain the transcriptions of all the works that Jesus did. Now, is this literary hyperbole? Well, most likely it is. But then you think how literally true it would be if we were to include all the works of Jesus from eternity past. This would be a literally true statement. This world could not contain a record of all of those works. That's worthy of an amen. But for the readers of the Gospel of John, I think the point to remember is simply this, we cannot contain Jesus. John says here, he has only written for us part of the truth. 
There is always more, always more, always more of Jesus. And that is part of the new reality, the new world order. Jesus is uncontainable. See, the old order was one of control and containment. That was Peter's world, John's world, the rest of the apostles' world. It's all they knew, containment and control. It was the way of Rome. But now, Caesar is not king. Jesus is, and he cannot be contained. I think of the Pharisees of the day. They thought they had it all figured out. They had hundreds of laws, and they lived their lives inside of them. Pharisees believed they knew exactly how God would act, exactly what God would do, and that's why they wouldn't bow before Jesus. They could not conceive that Jesus would be God's plan for their lives. And so the Pharisees missed out on the bigness of an uncontainable God. They were afraid to let God loose and to let go. They thought, well, we'll kill Jesus and that will remove our fear, but it didn't because they were afraid that the tomb might turn up empty. Of course they did. After all they had seen of Jesus, after all they had heard from him, of course they were afraid that the tomb might be empty. In this sense, they had more faith than the disciples. And if the tomb turned up empty, man life was going to have to change. And so because of their fear that the resurrection might become a reality, their actions wrote the classic story of containment. May I read to you the classic story? Story of containment. If I tell you we're almost through, may I read the classic story of containment. It's in Matthew chapter 26. It's after Jesus' crucifixion. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people, he has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard, go, make it secure as you can. And so they went, and they made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and posting a guard. Now, of course, we know that that didn't work out so well for them, right? Because the tomb could not contain Jesus. That's the reality. But the fact, that fact, does not prevent fear from continuing to attempt to contain Jesus. On what we would call the theologically liberal side, scholars take their place among the tomb stealers, sealers. And they work diligently to attempt to prove and convince us that the gospel stories of the resurrection and of the virgin birth, they're unreliable and therefore they should not be believed. Seal the tomb, post the guard. Contain Jesus to a warm, nice wish. Oh, the thought of a resurrected Jesus. Oh, deluded disciples and all that. Only don't allow Jesus to be a living reality. Contain him. Make it secure as you can.
But they can't. They can't contain the new life, can they? They can't stop the transformation that's happening in the hearts and lives around the world. They can't stop the new hope that the resurrected Christ brings. Why do they fear Jesus is alive? Do they, like the Pharisees, fear the claim that he would have on their lives if he really is alive? Seal the tomb, post the guard. But listen, that's not our world, is it? No, 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 no. That's not our world. We live in the theologically conservative world, right? Really conservative world, right? PCA, perfect church, I'm sorry, Presbyterian church in America, right? We inhabit a theologically precise, even rigid denomination, one in which it's easy to believe, if you listen carefully or not so carefully, that we have Jesus all figured out. We know exactly how Jesus is going to act. We know exactly what Jesus will do. We know exactly what Jesus won't do. We have him contained right down to the very narrow way that he must be worshipped in this way and no other. It's like we put Jesus in our theological yard with one of those invisible dog fences all around it. If Jesus tries to get out, shock, shock. Seal the tomb, post the guard. What fear is motivating us? And how are we so very different from the Pharisees that had them all figured out? And why must we contain him? And what are we afraid that Jesus might do? And why not let him loose? We can't contain him anyway. We can't. Do you realize that? If we try to contain him, that's fine. Jesus will just move on to other people who trust him for how big his kingdom is, who trust him and partner with him in this glory-restoring venture. You know, we used to sing a song. This song has fallen by the wayside. It's a great song that speaks to this issue. I'm not going to sing it. And the people of God said, Amen. Y'all know I sang from the Messiah last week. Please imagine. But I did it. But I want, I want, I want to tell you the, the lyrics of, of this, this, this song. Oh Lord, I am your willing servant. You know that I have been for years. I'm here in this pew every Sunday and Wednesday. I've stained it with many a tear. I've given you years of my service. I've always given my best, and I've never asked you for anything much. So, Lord, I deserve this request. Please don't send me to Africa. I don't think I've got what it takes. I'm just a man. I'm not a Tarzan. Don't like lions, gorillas, or snakes. I'll serve you here in suburbia in my comfortable middle-class life. But please don't send me out into the bush where the natives are restless at night. I'll see that the money is gathered. I'll see that the money is sent. I'll wash and stack the communion cups. I'll tithe 11%. I'll volunteer for the nursery. I'll go on the youth group retreat. I'll usher. I'll deacon. I'll go door to door. Just please keep me warming this seat. Please don't send me to Africa. Kind of sums it up, doesn't it? The stereotypical fear that we have if we were to really let go and let Jesus loose. Jesus might do something radical in our lives, which is always usually meant sending us to Africa. But we need not fear. 
We don't need to try to contain him, to seal the tomb and post the guard. We can't contain him anyway. Can we just say that together? We can't contain him anyway. We can't. And we know from all of his good acts that he's displayed in our lives and throughout history that we can trust him. It will be okay to let go. And it's better for us to be overwhelmed by an uncontainable Jesus than to believe that we have him all figured out. And it's better for us to be people who are eager to join him in his work and watch the glories he will perform. And it's better for us to be freed from ourselves and our own narrow lives and our own narrow wants, knowing they are nothing of real significance in light of a world that Jesus is conquering and transforming and a world in which he's restoring the glory. And so I challenge you to do this this morning. Make a plan. Make a plan. How do you intend to glorify Christ in your life and in your death? How do you intend to partner with God to transform the world through the power of an uncontainable Christ? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your truth. And we know that this truth that we hold in our hands It's all that we need for life and godliness. That's what you tell us. What we need to know of you, Lord, you reveal it right here in your word. Lord Jesus, what we need to know of you, what we need to know of our salvation, it's all right here, given to us by you. But Lord, I pray that you will help us know that this word does not contain all of who you are. And that's your truth as well. The world could not hold the books that could be written that might attempt to describe you and all of your acts. So I pray, Lord, that you would keep us very humble people. Pray that you would remove from us arrogance that causes us to believe that we have you all figured out, that limits you in your work, that says to you, Lord, you would never do that. Or the only thing we can say that about is sin. We know you would never sin. Apart from that, Lord, we're just not sure the great and awesome and mighty things that you might do in us and through us. So I pray that we as a congregation, Lord, would love you deeply because we know you, because we're studying your word and we see you revealed there and it makes us love you more and more. Lord, give us courage to live in this new world, this post-resurrection world where transformation and recreation and rebirth is possible. It's what the resurrection and power is all about. So help us to believe big things from you in that, to partner with you, Lord, in going out into the world with gospel acts and gospel love and gospel words, restoring your glory wherever we go. We submit ourselves to you, Lord, and pray that you would use us in a mighty way to transform our city and wherever we go around the world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.